Dr. J Interviews is a collection of candid conversations with good black professional men regarding life and career choices. I'm your host, Dr. J McCarthy. I would like to welcome to my show, Malcolm McGuire. How are you doing today, brother? I'm doing well, brother. Thank you. That sounds good, man. I'm going to share with the audience uh, how I was introduced to you a little bit later on in the show. But, <laughs> okay. uh, but yeah, I was looking over your resume prior to the interview, and it's quite extensive. Uh, we'll have some time to cover it all, but let's just dive right in and discuss uh, what you're currently doing right now for a living. Sure. So currently, I am a uh, investigator for the Hartford Financial Services, uh, which is an insurance company, uh, probably about the same size as, as a, a Liberty Mutual or a State Farm. Uh, my current role is basically to uh, investigate uh, potentially fraudulent insurance claims, uh, and that covers the gamut of um, you know, auto property and burglary all the way to uh, hail damage and property damage to both vehicles and houses and buildings and workers' compensation, um, arsons, stolen vehicles. We pretty much do it all. Any, anytime there's any question about whether or not an insurance claim is, is on the up and up, uh, we, get the, we get the opportunity to, to do some digging. So what's a, uh, what degrees, or are there any degrees required for what you do? So what I do does require, it requires more experience than a degree, to be honest with you, because the kinds of people who are selected to be investigators for an insurance company come from one of two different kinds of backgrounds. You either have experience as a claim adjuster handling insurance claims, or you have uh, some sort of law enforcement or military experience. Um, I, I would say that the, a minimum of a bachelor's degree would probably be what would be required for or a claims adjuster uh, just to get your foot in the door. What could someone expect, just like a, a, a spectrum or a salary range for someone in that position starting off? So the salary ranges, as I understand them, uh, I didn't come into this as a, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, but I didn't come into this as an insurance adjuster. So I, I kind of skipped some of those, <laughs> some of those levels, but uh, as, as it's been explained to me, it starts out in about the $60,000 range. I think it'd actually be a good time right now to kind of pivot and, and show how we know each other. Uh, we share a mutual friend, and I was uh, initially reached out to, to Mr. McGuire to see if he could speak to some of my ball club members uh, to try to bridge police and community relations. Uh, our mutual friend, he speaks so highly of you, and he's put us on some stuff together, like in text or whatnot. Sure. Um, and due to this COVID, it was just kind of hard to get the kids together, so we figured this podcast would be a good way to do that. Uh, so I guess that kind of entails, can you, you share a little bit about your, your background or your previous profession? Sure. So, so actually, the, the mutual friend that you speak of is a, is a good friend of mine, a good fraternity brother of mine. We've, been, we've known each other probably about 15 years now. And uh, he has been in my life for the majority of my, of my previous profession. And so in that profession was I worked in law enforcement for uh, just over 13 years. Um, I have worked in... I have worked for a municipality, so I've worked for a city police department. I have worked for a university, uh, and so I've kind of gotten the, to, to, to see the both ends of that spectrum, but uh, we've been in contact for a very long time. So I joined uh, a police department out in East Texas right out of college. Uh, I'm talking the week after I graduated, I started the police academy, wow. and uh, I stayed down there for about four years, and my, my father, unfortunately, got uh, terminally ill. And retired up in the North Texas area. So we ended up moving up to North Texas. And, and I've been in, in North Texas since uh, 2006, uh, where I stayed uh, for another 10 years before leaving the law enforcement profession to 
going to the private sector and working for insurance companies like I do now. I would assume with both of the professions you had, no day is the same. What's a typical day like for both of those? <laughs> wow. Okay. I'll start with the with the the more interesting one. Uh, so law enforcement, I've worked I've worked in several different capacities. So I've I've worked in patrol. Uh, I've been a, an investigator or a detective, as they're known in, in other areas. Uh, I've worked in training. So I've been responsible for training new officers at police academies and teaching classes. Um, and I've been a supervisor. So it, there's no typical day, but I would say for a patrol officer, your typical day is typically you come to work and, you know, a lot of times you'll see on television a bunch of officers sitting in one room and there's usually one person who's kind of you know, giving them their notes for the day and things they need to be paying attention to and stuff like that. So that really happens. That's a that's a real thing. So these these briefings these officers go through. This is I know you see it on television and like, no, nah, they can't really just be sitting around. No, that's that's how the day starts. So <laughs> after that, you get ready and you, you go out onto the street and and you you know you assign whatever part of the city you're you're assigned to. Um, and that's that's really where the, the whole community policing aspect of things is supposed to start. Because the expectation is that each officer is going to be uh, knowledgeable of the area where they work. And uh, that's a big reason why a lot of police officers work where they grew up, because it's just that much easier for them to uh, to go ahead and, and, and be comfortable and, and to, to know the areas and know the things to look out for. So, you know, throughout the day, you, you come across, oh, goodness, uh, hundreds of different types of things. But uh, the most important part is, is connecting with your community and understanding the problems that exist in that particular area. Um, in in terms of insurance, my typical day now during COVID is really doing what I'm doing now, sitting behind a desk, to be honest with you. But my job is is uh, what we call remote. So I don't work in an office. Uh, I'm sitting in my, in my house right now. Um, but even when we weren't in the pandemic, I was not at home. I was, I'm sorry, I was not in an office. I was, I was out and about. So uh, the company provides me with a company car. I have a cell company cell phone. Uh, they provide me with a laptop so that I can work on the go, as it were, because we all have uh, different assigned territories. Uh, my territory is actually most of. Well, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an idea. So I work southern Dallas, southern Tarrant County, all the way down to Colleen, Texas. And from there, I work all the way out to the Louisiana, Texas border. And from there, I work all the way out to um, about El Paso, Texas, on the west side of the state. So I have a lot of ground to cover. And so I am typically in my car <laughs> or on the road heading somewhere to do something for someone. So there is no typical day for me. Um, but from the beginning of it, it's basically reviewing different files, reviewing cases that need to be looked at, uh, setting up, you know, appointments to talk to people, whether it's over the phone or in person. And, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of different things. We interview a lot of people, do a lot of interviewing um, of, of claimants and witnesses and people who we ensure we go out to a lot of scenes. Uh, unfortunately, I've had to I've had to work some investigations where people have uh, passed away for you know while at work and investigate things like that. So um, it, it's it, there's a lot that comes in that, but there's there's no typical day, but it's always interesting. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. Uh, two quick questions about law enforcement. Sure. Uh, same question: What is the salary range that someone would expect uh, trying to get into that career field? So that will depend on the. Uh, the agency where you choose. Uh, typically, your sheriff's departments, which are responsible for the county and actually are responsible for the jails in, in most, most, well, in Texas, everywhere, um, they're going to pay a little bit less. And to be honest with you, a lot of that has to do with the educational requirements are a little lower. Uh, working for a city, you're going to the salary range is going to be higher. Um, but 
in terms of North Texas, I'll just give you an example. In North Texas, you're looking probably in the $65,000 to $70,000 range starting off. Uh, if you go to an agency and you already have some law enforcement experience, that will bump you up even higher. I know of agencies now that are hiring um, certified officers, uh, that is officers who are already have a peace officer certification, starting them out at $80,000. Wow. Then that's actually, that was going to be my second question. I was, I was browsing through your resume. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to me what a master peace officer certification is? So when you graduate from a police academy in the state of Texas, you 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 get a basic police officer certification. That means you've met the basic amount, uh, minimum amount of requirements to be a certified peace officer in the state. Um, there's a combination of things that can help you move from basic to an intermediate. Uh, those things are amount of training hours in a year. You can combine those with education. If you have military experience, you can combine that as well. Um, so it goes basic, intermediate, and then master peace officer. So master peace officer is as high as you can go in terms of certification. So that's that's what that is. It's basically saying that you have um, the, the requisite amount of hours and education and training uh, to carry that particular that particular certificate. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, another thing that stood out when I was looking through, uh, I see that you're an adjunct instructor at the local community college. And one of the things that uh, need a little clarification, you said that you instruct courses uh, between law enforcement and minority juveniles, as well as the internal police culture. Can you discuss that a little bit about what that's sure. involved in? Absolutely. So the the adjunct instructor position that I have now is at Tarrant County College in the, the Northwest Campus in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, and it's basically what we call a regional academy. And it's a regional academy because departments who are not large enough to have their own internal police academy will send their new cadets, their new hires to a regional academy where they are trained alongside other smaller agencies. And so, you know, I could go teach a academy class at TCC and there would be maybe six or seven different agencies who've sent recruits to the to their academy. So that's that's a regional academy. Uh, what you're fer- referring to with the, the disproportionate mi- minority portion, that's that's a separate um, job, I guess. Uh, that's a consulting position that I've had for a few years now. Uh, it's tied to the Department of Justice, where I am. I get the opportunity to help construct courses for um, for agencies around the country. And so what you're talking about specifically, it's a course called uh, Disproportionate Minority Contact. Uh, for minority juveniles between law enforcement and juveniles and basically what it is it's it's a it's a class that discusses um, some alternative ways to deal with juveniles as opposed to just locking everybody up and um, I think the, the 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 biggest disparity that there is is between minority juveniles who are contacted by law enforcement and anyone else and I'm actually pretty proud of that that course because uh, that course is actually picked up by the state of Florida, and it's still being taught today in Florida uh, by the Department of Juvenile Justice in Florida. So uh, I'm working on a class right now called Police Culture um, that basically deals with the internal culture of law enforcement and how um, there's also there's sometimes there's some disparity between how law enforcement is viewed and how law enforcement views themselves. Well, you know, that's awesome. because I think that will go right into the next point. Uh, of course, you know, in lieu of everything that's going on right now, we need to you know, bring up police brutality. Sure. Uh, of course, with this global Black Life Matters movement, uh, the events surrounding George Floyd, you know, we have a responsibility to address some of these fears. Absolutely. And I think it's good to have someone from a different perspective. Um, and like I said, as you know, there's so many names. We got Breonna Taylor, 
Trayvon, Philando Castro, Tamir Rice, Eric Carter. Uh, you have ones people may not talk about that much, Stephen Clark, Alton Sterling, Janice Stefanville, um, and the list goes on and on. And, and you look online and you, you see the ratio of the black men and women are being killed. I think I read um, somewhere that's like 28% of those killed by police in 2013, or since 2013, um, have been blacks, despite us only being 13% of the population. So, right. you know, that's disheartening. Um, so I do have a question for you. Sure. Uh, what I want to do is I want to give you a little bit about my background, um, and then we can just dive right into it. And I think that we, we've discussed this briefly before. Sure. Um, I, I'm from Ohio. I grew up in the inner city, you know, and when I was younger, my mother had a stroke. All right? mm-hmm. I didn't have a father around, um, and I needed a car to get back and forth. So save my money, got, got a car. Um, one of my buddies' father looked out for me. Somebody's church was selling a car. Uh, anybody that's in the cars, you know, I got an 82 Delta 88. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So smooth, <laughs> but you know, there's a perception that goes along with that car, you know? So I do understand that as an adult, you know, it looks like a D-boy car. Right. Um, but I purchased it, you know, I worked hard for it. I registered it. I got insurance. I did everything by the book. And I can't tell you how many times that I got pulled over, you know, sure. being profiled just because of my car and you know, I'm a good, responsible kid, you know, and I got in this shift like any other team, you know, but nothing illegal. And I felt like they were picking on me, trying to get a reaction, you know, and I just got pulled over for like driving 25 and a 30 or looking suspicious and things like that. And my mother taught me how to, you know, before she got sick, you know, how to react, you know, not get an attitude, you know, your disposition. But it's still, you know, I guess when I look at these people that lost their lives, I feel blessed, you know, sure. blessed to have my life and it's minuscule comparison, but I can't negate, you know, that those experiences are still part of my psyche, you know, and, and I don't get pulled over as much. Um, it, but it has occurred in my adulthood, you know, and you kind of know the area that we live in. Sure. We're middle class and we're in fluent communities now. And when I see, and I'll just be straight transparent, you know, when I see the, the flash of the blue and red, it doesn't register in my mind that this is protection. You know, I immediately wonder what I'm going to get harassed for. You know, I make sure when I see them behind, I don't veer on the road. I don't touch the inner lane. I right. turn perfect. And, and it, you look back like, man, that is emotionally traumatizing. You know, I'm in my 40s. Yeah. Taxpaying citizen, I'm registered, legal, insured, right. good father, good friend. I work hard, I'm educated. But at the end of the day, I still have the same fears that I had as a 17-year-old teen because it doesn't matter if I'm seen as less than human. You know, right. it's like no matter how much we fight to change, these stereotypes perpetuated. Yeah. You know, uh, we get pulled over by certain officers, and I'm not typecasting all of them, you know, but it seems like none of that matters. And then personally, to compile that anxiety, I got four sons of driving age that I gotta worry about right now. Right. You know? So, and I'm sorry for this rant, but I just kind of want to give you a black uh, background um, and, and just be like I said, be transparent. So this leads to my question for you from a law enforcement perspective. What can you say to young black men, um, young and old black men alike, to assist them in handling these accounts with police the safest way possible from your perspective? What, what do I, you know, the, the slogan they have going on right now is return home safety. You see these commercials. Sure. What do I tell my sons to make sure that they come home safely? First of all, thank you for that. Uh, it, I didn't consider it a rant. I think it's. I think it's more of just. Yeah, I think we we can all echo everything you just said. Everyone, no matter where you're from, um, and it's it's it, it's compounded for me as well because I have two teenagers, both boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, my oldest is 15. He's just now starting to drive uh, with us in the car, obviously. But it's um it's a concern, and I can tell you. From experience and, and and I tell people all this all the time I said because there's a there's a lot of pressure added pressure on 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 black police officers these days uh, for a myriad of reasons 
Um, but I think one thing that a lot of people forget is that once we take that uniform off, just black people like everybody else. Uh, I actually saw a video the other day of a young lady in, in a uniform who had, excuse me, who'd been pulled over and was tearful because of the way she was treated. And she was in uniform. Uh, it was, it was ridiculous. But uh, as far as advice on what, on what, what you could do, it, it, it almost sounds kind of cliche coming out of my mouth and I hate saying it um, because typically what we've always been told is just comply, just do what you're supposed to do and you'll be fine. Uh, I think we've seen recently that that's not always going to be the case. And I'm not going to sit up here and try to feed anybody any, any level of, of misinformation saying, Hey, just do what you're told to do and everything will be fine. Right. Um, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> the very first thing I would say, and this is what I tell my own sons is obviously be polite, be respectful. Um, a lot of times the younger generation these days confuses be polite, be respectful would be subservient. Um, not the same thing. Um, don't give an officer any other, any reason to believe that you would cause some sort of danger to them. Because I'll tell you, from a, from a training standpoint, from a police officer standpoint, the number one thing you hear officers say after some sort of use of force incident is, I feared for my life. Or they were making some sort of furtive movement. Or they were doing something that, you know, was kind of sketchy. So that would be my initial advice. Is don't, don't give them a reason to, to make that kind of statement. Uh, and, and full transparency, I have these same conversations when I teach officers. I just taught a class at Southern Methodist University two weeks ago on cultural diversity and community interaction, and we ha I had the same conversation. We got into the whole blue lives matter, thin blue line stuff, and uh, you know it was it was it was an uncomfortable discussion, but it was one that needed to be had because police officers are trained, uh, just like you were saying earlier about how you know we want to we want to be able to tell our sons and daughters what to do to be able to come home. I guarantee you. That in every single academy, and at least in the state of Texas that I know of, officers are being told a, a similar mantra, and that's basically you got to do what you have to do to come home at night, right? Um, so it's two different perspectives, same message. Yeah. The only difference is these officers are the ones walking around with instruments of death on their hip, and everybody else is not. And so for me, it's a training issue, um, and even more, a little deeper than that, it's it, it's an issue of the heart. Um, you know, it goes back to to recruiting and hiring and retention. Uh, there are officers who are, there are a lot of officers in this country who should not be police officers uh, for for a myriad of reasons. Um, but I, going back to your original question, I, I feel like the the biggest the, the the best advice I could give a young man who looks like you and I is to is to be polite, be respectful, um, and 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 follow the instructions that are given to you. Um, but you know, don't let anyone take advantage of you. You know, don't 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 put yourself in a position where that has to be the case. Can you um, can you address what are our rights if if they say I need to search your vehicle? Because you hear stuff, you know, you don't mm -hmm. know what's legal and what's not. You know, and, sure. I, and I have to admit myself, I'm ignorant to a lot of that stuff. You know, okay. I just live my life and I do, you know, I, that's not in the forefront until I get pulled over. And then right. you like you wish you had that kind of knowledge. And you see these videos on YouTube of people saying Know your rights. You could say this or you could ask for this and that. So from a law uh, enforcement perspective, what are our rights? In in terms of what? Are we talking about in terms of searching your vehicle, your yeah, persons, just yeah. stopping and talking to you? If they, you know, can they just stop anyone? Do you have to allow them to search your vehicle? Uh, what you should say in these kind of situations? 
Well, I think the the number one thing is people need to understand exactly uh, how much power the people have. Uh, law enforcement is bound by by more rules, not just state law, but their own department policies than people even realize. So let's let's take an example of someone walking down the street. Okay, you you know not you, but just you know just anyone just walking down the street, and an officer stops, uh, you know, starts to stops and starts to talk to him. At that point, that's what we would call just a consent contact, right? That's just me stopping and saying, hey, how are you doing? All that kind of stuff. Um, now, if a, a consent contact doesn't include anything enforcement related, like you don't have a what we call probable cause or, or even a lower level of reasonable suspicion to believe that someone's doing something illegal. It's just a consent contact. You have every right to tell that officer, I don't want to talk to you and keep walking. That officer has no legal reason to detain you any further, right? Uh, if an officer has a quote-unquote legal reason to stop you, you can consider yourself detained at that time. But even then, that doesn't mean that they have a right to search you. And you can at any point refuse to be searched, right? Um, and, and and just to just to be fully transparent, a lot of these municipalities and, and they have different kind of ordinances and, and minor minor laws that make it easier for law enforcement to target people, right? I'll give you an example. In the state of Texas, if you are walking in the road, you know, it doesn't even have to be in the middle of the road, just in the road, but there's a sidewalk right there, the officer has a legal reason to stop you because that's actually against the law. It's, it's called walking where a sidewalk is provided. It's really, really silly. <laughs> but it exists, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, you know, riding your bicycle on the wrong side of the street, that gives an officer a legal reason to stop you and talk to you. Uh, stuff that we would not even consider, but, uh, you know, having gone through a lot of the training and, and things like that, you, you, you pick up on it. But you always have the right to tell them no. Um, now, let's move on to a, to a, a vehicle stop because that's kind of the more popular one, right? You get pulled over in your vehicle and an officer... Uh, you know, ask to search your vehicle. There's nothing stopping you from asking them why, right? And again, you can still refuse. And I would, to be honest with you, um, especially if you know that you haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing in your vehicle you need to be concerned about. Uh, officers are trained to look for certain things, for certain behaviors. And a lot of it is just things that people do every day, and it's not as big a deal. Uh, and, and so that... Again, that goes back to what I was saying about the training that officers receive. You know, it's a little it's a little light on the humanity and a little heavy on the enforcement. And we need to we need to bridge that gap. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I just think I just, you know, wanted to point out that it, it's always, always OK for you. to. Refuse. What I like and I want to pause before I ask the second question and applaud you for the programs that you're implementing. I think that well, let me go back to, to my situation. When I was growing up, I drew you know, majority black churches, uh, mm -hmm. all black, all black neighborhoods, majority black schools. And when I went to college, that was kind of a culture shock. It was the first time that I had to, you know, really interact with, with you know, different races on that level. And my roommate, my roommate was a white guy and he came from a small town. And in that moment, I learned so much from him. I realized one, especially going to that university, how many more white people there are than black people. You don't yes. think about these things because black people traditionally migrate to cities. Especially right. in Ohio, you know, we migrate to Cleveland, Cincinnati, Toledo, the major cities, but there are all these towns in between. Right. Um, 
And, and when I had dialogue with him, one of the things I realized is when they don't have black people in their community, they only have one or two. The only perception they have is television. So yep. if you're watching things like Boys in the Hood when they're driving certain cars, you know, the famous theme with the shotgun or you're watching these videos and it's their, you know, I have to take into account some people don't have interactions with us and that's the perception they have. So I think with you doing these classes of cultural awareness, I think that's it's really big on bridging that gap. Um, it's like you said, my car growing up, when I get older, I realize that, you know, it's a D-boy car, you know, it had 10 on the windows, it had rims. But if they knew me, it's just like, man, I was the, you know, just the most docile kid, you know, I didn't want to know problems, you know. But when you see certain things, you associate it with certain things, cultural things that they they see. Um, The second question I have, and we keep hearing this on the news, is this defunding the police, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, I do, I get the goal is is to change the public perspective, but what I've read, there's two basic theories on that. Uh, some people, uh, the supporters of divestment, want to reallocate some, but not all the funds away from the police department to different social services, and they want to reduce the contact to the public, thinking that that will reduce the likeliness or likelihood of uh, police violence. And then the other ones are just seeking to disband the police and consider uh, funding an initial step towards creating an entirely different model of community-led public safety. Now, I have opinions okay. about you know that <laughs> I I get there both both ends of the spectrum, you know, and. And I see that they're kind of interconnected because they're trying to they're trying to change public safety. But from your experience, what are your views on this defunding the police thing? And can you give us some additional insight that we might not be thinking about? Oddly enough, I agree with defunding police departments. I think it's it's an amazing idea. Um, I think that when people hear the word defunding or hear the phrase defunding, they they hear it, they can read it, but abolishing is what's in their mind. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's why this is a, this is a good idea to to make sure we're we're clarifying. So I don't have an issue with defunding. I think it's a good idea. I think that there are a plethora of programs in our communities that need more money. Um, I and I'll give you an example. There's a the the local department here in my city has uh, decided to take some of the vacant officer positions that they have and use and put those towards creating a mental health unit um, that would pair police officers with uh, psychologists, hopefully I'm saying that right, psychologists, psychiatrists, well, social workers <laughs> who, will, who, will, who, will, who will assist in responding to uh, calls that involve uh, your MHMR and, and people with disabilities, as opposed to just officers showing up, because these officers are not qualified yeah. to deal with people in this manner. Um, so th- that's, that's an example of how taking, taking resources and putting it in another place. Um, that still aids the overall public safety mission. But no, I think defunding the police is a really good idea. And I hope that everyone is is uh, really seriously thinking about it because, again, we, we need that money elsewhere. Yeah, We need that money elsewhere. And um, the second part of that, abolishing, for me, it sounds like an emotional response. Um, yeah. But I think that there is a perspective that bears hearing out. Exactly. And I think that's where we, we, we run into issues is where we just we immediately we just get so defensive. And my first thought is not why are people saying or, or not getting defensive about people wanting to abolish police departments. But let's find out why. Exactly. Why do people want to abolish police department? Maybe it's because they've only met officers in an enforcement manner and that's the only way they know police officers. I would want to get rid of us too. Yeah. Now, having done the job and seen the things I've seen. I don't know who else would do it, but I, you know, I'd love to hear some options. 
uh, I think the city of San Francisco in, uh, up in California is, is thinking, not thinking about, it. I think they're already implementing, um, they're not sending officers to calls that don't, um, that aren't typical quote unquote violent in nature. So we'll see how that works. Um, to me, it sounds like a first step, but I just, I don't see abolishment as a, as a realistic thing, but I'm a hundred percent on board with defunding. If it, if it's going to, send some more money to some other deserving programs. That's awesome. I have one more question. I'm sorry sure. to put you on the spot here because I didn't have this uh, far to right before we get into the background. Okay. What's your favorite, most realistic, and I'm sure you get this all the time, either cop series or cop movie? Oh, I can see it and I can't think of the name of it. Um, Southland okay. is the most realistic cop show I've seen. Um, I don't know that I can think of, well, there was another one, um, movie that I saw here a few years ago, it had Jake Gyllenhaal in it. And, uh, I think Michael Pena was the other one, uh, it's about some two LAPD police officers. They were partners. Um, but that was probably the most realistic that I've seen. Uh, I got to think of the name of that. I'll, I'll, I'll get it to you, but, um, no Southland is the most realistic police show I've seen. Nice. I remember that. That was pretty good. Yeah, that was pretty good. All right, so let's go ahead and get off that that, that heavy stuff. Let's, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, but you know what? This is one of the reasons why I really wanted you on here because I, I think it's good that people hear your perspective and sure. and any kind of relationship you have, relationship with your wife or your children, mm-hmm. you have to have communication, you know, and it, and it has to be two ways. Sometimes we need to get on the other side and find out what's going on. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate that invaluable information. Um, sure. Let's talk about your childhood and we try to see how we got to where you are. Tell me a little bit about your household growing up and your childhood. Oh man, I'm still not sure how I got here. Um, <laughs> so I grew up, I, I was born in, in Linwood, California, um, which is a city in Los Angeles County, just outside of Compton. Uh, I grew up, well, I grew up all over LA. So I lived in one of those families where we moved like every five years, but we, we stayed in the county. <laughs> <laughs> we stayed in LA County, which is huge. But, uh, you know, so I, I lived in Compton and then we moved to West L.A. and a couple other places. And I finally settled in Pasadena, California, uh, home of the Rose Bowl. And uh, so that's where I went to junior high. I went to high school there and I graduated from high school, kind of poked around a little bit, to be honest with you. I did. Uh, went, I was one of those kids that I was bored by school, like school didn't interest me. Uh, I was always a smart kid. I just didn't want to do what other kids were doing. And uh so I bounced around a couple of junior colleges, really just appeasing my father, to be honest with you, and not get kicked out. And uh, one day, a good friend of mine who I grew up with, uh, she told me she'd applied and been accepted to uh, a small HBCU in East Texas called Wiley College. And uh, she said, hey, you should apply and come with me. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't I don't know anything about HBCUs. So, um, but I did. I I'd applied and got accepted and ended up in uh Marshall, Texas, a town of 25,000 people that was still partially segregated in 1998. Uh, And this is coming from L.A. So you talk about a culture shock. So you were talking about growing up around mostly black people and then and then integrating. Well, my experience was the exact opposite. I grew up in the melting pot that was Los Angeles, California, um, and then coming to Wiley College, which is nothing but black. That's the first time I'd ever been around nothing but yeah. black people. So, you know, I had to I had to weather the, the questions about, oh, you from LA? Do you know Shaq? All that kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. <laughs> but but I grew to I grew to love it. I well, I, I grew to love it. I, I I tried to come home, I think the first year. And uh 
Pops wasn't having that. So I ended up staying. I ended up uh, graduating from Wiley College. And uh, so a, a little bit about my, my background as far as my family goes. Um, I'm the youngest of six, six boys. Oh, wow. Uh, and I also have four sisters. Okay. Right. So we call ourselves the Black Brady Bunch because <laughs> my parents were both married once before. And my mother had all girls. My father had all boys. I'm the only product of their union. Right. Oh, nice. So I'm the baby boy and I'm way younger than my sibling. So, <laughs> so fun fact of my six of, of my dad's six sons, five of us have been police officers. Uh, so it's kind of just and I attribute it to our upbringing. Uh-huh. You know, my, my dad always said you guys are going to probably end up being police officers or preachers, depending on depending on which one you, you decide. Uh, I have one brother who's actually both. But. I was the I was the youngest. Um, so yeah, I, I I got recruited to go work for a police department right out of college, um, and you know I went and, and and joined that profession, and uh, you know that's that that was that was my start on on my professional journey. But uh, while in college, I met my wife. Uh, she was right. we we were we've been together since '99. Uh, I think we met freshman orientation, so we we've been together a long time. Uh, she's a nurse. My wife is a cardiovascular nurse uh, up here in the North Texas area. And uh, we have two boys, um, 15 and 13. Our, our oldest is a football player, um, played sophomore at a high school up here. And then my youngest is actually playing club soccer. So he, he takes up all my money. Uh, <laughs> so we, the majority of my free time is spent traveling with him to practices and games and stuff like that. So, yeah, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's me in a nutshell. What was your degree in? My bachelor's degree was in uh, English literature, actually. <laughs> when I got to school, I wanted to be a mass comm major. When in high school, I used to write for the school paper, and I thought I was going to be some big time journalist. And uh, I got to college, and my first year, they did away with the mass communications program, and I had to find <laughs> another major. Uh, I picked English because I love to read and write. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, when you you're a brother um, taking Shakespeare, you know that 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 don't come off as too cool. <laughs> But but, uh, I I really enjoy my my college experience. I I play baseball as well. So I got to I got to stay active and and do some things. Um, But yeah, no, I English was my was my undergrad. And then um, I eventually got my master's degree in dispute resolution and conflict management uh, at at SMU up here in Dallas. Nice. What do you and I had another guest, same thing, same question I asked him. Mm -hmm. What do you feel the importance of HBCUs are? I think they're more important than ever um, now. Now we we all know that you know HBCUs were were created because we didn't have a choice, uh, uh, an option to go anywhere else. Um, to be honest with you, and the majority of them focused on education because that was what we lacked as people more than anything else uh, in e- education and uh, obviously the the farming aspect of things. Um, I I think they're they're more important now than any other time because you're not going to be able to go anywhere else in this world uh, as a black man or a black woman where you're not going to be the minority at anywhere else but an HBCU. You know, you have the rest of your life <laughs> to be looking over <laughs> your shoulder and concerned about how you're viewed and all that other kind of stuff. You can truly be amongst family for four years. And I encourage anyone. I love, you know, I, I, I have, a, I've worked at a PWI. I, I obviously got my master's degree from one, but I'm telling you, if you have an opportunity to go, just go visit. I promise you, once you go visit an HBCU, you're going to want to go to one. Uh, you know, those college tours are the truth. So, uh, you know, 
you use that use use those four years to be stress free before you hit the real world. <laughs> <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that, brother. Nothing wrong with that. All right, so now we're at the point in the interview where I ask you the perspective questions I ask all my guests. Okay. So the first one is, you know, we we've talked about your past and we know that everything you went through it formed you to be the man that you are. You had to go through these things that were necessary. But if the older you can go back and talk to the younger you, what would you tell yourself to help navigate that road? I would have taken school way more seriously, much sooner, much sooner. And when I think about the, uh, and, and I've, I've been, I've been given so many different opportunities. God has really been good to me. Um, but I, I was a late bloomer educationally. Um, you know, I, I didn't barely make it out of high school, but I probably could have, it probably could have been close. Um, but, uh, matter of fact, I, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. My father actually, uh, I remember my senior year, he had a meeting with the guidance counselor and he had a guidance counselor actually tell him that I was not college material and that I should look into going to the military. Um, and it's because I just, you know, I was nonchalant and indifferent to everything. Right. And, uh, my dad never told me that my father passed away about 12 years ago. And my mother was the one who told me I had no, I never knew this conversation took place. Uh, and I'm sitting here, you know, two degrees post high school, and I wasn't even, according to the counselor, not supposed to be, not supposed to be college material, right? So um, I would have taken it serious a lot sooner. Like I had, I like to write, and I like playing baseball. I didn't care about anything else in high school. Um, so I, I would have taken it a lot, a, a lot, uh, a lot more serious, even in college. I would have done a lot more um, educationally than than I, you know, I felt like I did. So. I think the sooner you take education seriously, um, number one, you'll be taken more seriously. But number two, it's going to open up more avenues for you the earlier you start. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Second question. Um, I'm a big proponent of strengthening one's mind, body, and spirit. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me how you personally strengthen one or either all three of these areas? Mind, body, and spirit. Uh, well, body is actually an, an easy one um, because I have the ath the athletes that I have as, as kids. So I... <laughs> I have to keep up with them. <laughs> I have to let them know the old man still still can, still can get with him when I need to. But it's it's just important. It's it's important to be able to take care of myself so that I can be around for them, so that I can be around to 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 see them and, and see their kids. So um, they're my motivation for taking care of myself physically. Um, spirit is probably even easier. Uh, I I belong to Antioch Christian Fellowship in Corinth, uh, Texas, and. Uh, I have a, a really genuine relationship with my pastor and uh, he's, he's, he's a moral center for me, but he is, um, you know, he's, he makes it so much easier for me to stay in touch with, with my spiritual self. And, you know, he's the, he's that, that angel on my shoulder to keep me from saying some of the stuff I want to say, <laughs> but uh, that, that part is, is not as, is not as difficult. Um, my mind is the problem. Because, <laughs> because, <laughs> and, I, and I say that because I'm one of those people that wants to do everything. Like I have a hard time sometimes focusing on one task or two tasks because I feel like I can contribute in so many different ways. Um, I think that the the centralizing focus, a centralizing uh, key for me is to focus on a task and do it to the best of my ability. Um, you know, we we are a special people, and there's just so much that we can do. But you know, we we have to learn to to share the wealth and not try and be everything to everyone. So. I think the, the, as far as the mind goes, it's just it's just focus. Focus has got to be the key. Now, now, you had said something, you just mentioned that you like to do a lot of things. 
I made a couple of notes that I'm going to go back to these because I forgot to cover this. Okay. You, you, I see in your resume, you also have, you've done classes in Rwanda, Kenya, and you also served in the Air Force uh, Reserve as well. I did. Boy, you I did. did. Hey man, I, when I said this guy's resume is impressive, I was reading this thing and I was just like, "Wow!" You know, you read it and you're like, "I need to get on the ball myself." <laughs> I appreciate that. No, um, going to Africa uh, really changed my life and changed my 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 worldview, my my cultural worldview. Um, the, the going to Rwanda and and first of all, you've never been to Rwanda, and I, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Hotel Rwanda. Yes. You know, I got a chance to actually go to that hotel. We got a chance to to view the or, or visit the the genocide memorial. Um, I've been to the cemetery where most of the bodies are, and uh, you know, I've had conversations with both uh, Hutus and Tutsis, and uh, it is it is what I call the epitome of conflict resolution, because if you if there's any place in the world where two opposing sides are now living and working together. Uh, it's 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 Rwanda. It's Kigali, really the capital where it all happened. And that was a life changing experience for me. Um, so I got a chance to go in 2014 to um, with a team of other people to uh, teach some classes to some of their local public safety officials, I guess, kind of a police department um, and as well as uh, some of the Rwanda National Guard um, who are who are their actual police department. And that was an experience. Uh, I, I've taught a, a lot of places around the state. Um, that's the first time I'd ever had a chance to teach using an interpreter. Um, I realized that Africa is extremely relational in terms of time. <laughs> <laughs> time is just a word there. Uh, you know, you, and here, here in the States, you, you, you break from a class, you know, you do 45 minutes, you take 15 minute break, you come back, you do another 45 minutes. In Africa, you break. There's coffee and tea and cookies. There's dancing. There's singing. Who knows when you're coming back to actually start the class all over again? <laughs> but if nothing else, that taught me that it's important to be relational. I'm in contact. This is it's been six years. I'm in contact today with people from Rwanda that I met, and it was it was life changing. But and, and hopefully, you know, a lot of the training we brought was was helpful. But um, yeah, no, you you. Until you get a chance to to experience the culture somewhere else, uh, it makes you appreciative to a certain standpoint, but it also kind of makes you feel like we're missing out on something because that's just not something we do well in this country. We don't relate to each other well. Um, we don't show that level of humanity, and uh, to see that, especially in some place like Rwanda, where the only the only uh, kind of like you said, the only thing you've seen on television is the movie where you know folks are slaughtering each other. You know, and then you go there and you see people from opposing tribes who are I've had plenty of people tell me, you know, well, oh, so I, I've had people ask, you know, are you Tutsi? Are you Hutu? And they were like, I'm, I'm just Rwandan. Like they don't even make those same classifications anymore. And when I went there, it was the 20th anniversary. So that was a big deal. Um, so we're talking 94 to 2014. It was a big deal. And uh, it, it'll change. It'll change your life. It really will. Um, I miss the Air Force. I, I've, I've got a chance to, to to do some things in the Air Force in terms of, of training. I got to do some training in Saudi Arabia um, uh, during uh, Operation Enduring Freedom. And, uh, you know, it was it was a good time. Some of the best, I think probably the best seven years I've, I've spent was being a part of the military. Awesome. And, you know, and to go back to what you said, we don't do that here, I feel, because we don't want to. You know, right. I don't feel there's a desire for humanity. 
and I don't want to keep beating a dead horse, but you know, from a black man's perspective, you're sitting here. Let's talk about Michael Vick, for example. Sure. You know, Michael Vick grew up. Uh, most of us know his story. You know, single family home, and you know, crazy athletic. He goes on to do great things, but because of his loyalty to some knucklehead friends, and we've all had friends, probably even to this day, that we probably shouldn't have in our lives. You know, it's not like he was physically out there fighting these dogs. You know, and it's not that I'm I'm not condoning this, but what I am saying is it's the way that that man was persecuted and the the outrage that people had still towards do. yeah still do towards this man he's st- you know he's still doing tours where he's apologizing you know and this is over a dog and i love dogs you know don't mm-hmm. get me wrong but on the same note we don't see this same humanity towards uh brianna taylor you right. know or in these other names right and and it and it's i'm glad this black lives thing took a you know a turn for the better, you know, went globally. It, it recognized it, it, it engages in conversation like this. Uh, people that didn't know how we were feeling are starting to hear things. I, I hope that it goes in the right direction. Sure. Um, but it's at least initiated the conversation, you know, and along those lines, I appreciate this conversation with you. Uh, the last question I have actually is, is there anything over this conversation that we uh, didn't cover that you want to share with young brothers or anybody seeking a career change? I will, I will say this um, from a, Someone who's worn a few different hats um, from a from a, a black man who has worked in law enforcement, who still is kind of sort of a little bit dip his toe in the law enforcement water as, a, as an instructor. I really I want young brothers to understand and young sisters as well to understand that. Um, specifically, black law enforcement officers, when we when, you know, when they take that uniform off, they're just like you. And I think that it's important to remember that. The only way you're going to see the humanity in people and to learn um, how they really feel about stuff is to engage with them. You know, um, there's been a whole lot made of this whole of the, the, the Blue Lives Matter response to Black Lives Matter, which I think is ridiculous. Um, I think it's it's petty and it's childish. Uh, Blue Lives Matter is it's not a thing because you take a uniform off black just like me. Um, that's my own personal stance on it. However, <laughs> I, I, I will say that I think people, I think people need to see, um, need to try and see the humanity in, in these officers. And on that same token, these officers need to make it easier to see the humanity in them. Um, when you, when you reinforce the stereotypes, it's, it's real hard to try and get people to, to, to want to care about your life. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I would just, I, and, and the other, the other part of that is I would encourage and it's difficult for us because we are so untrusting of law enforcement. Uh, I grew up in LA in the eighties. I, I get it. Trust me. I get it. Um, but you know, it, it's going to take some, some coming together, but think about doing some things like, you know, visiting your local departments, going to some of these citizen police academies, do a ride along, you know, find an officer that you trust, do a ride along, learn to kind of see or get a little bit of perspective about what it looks like from their eyes. Uh, and you, you, you may find there's more common ground than we're aware of. I agree. And I, you know, I think one of the, one of my biggest thing is I always teach my son. I teach character. I teach, you know, a true, true measure of a man is not what you do when people see it, what right. you do when people aren't looking, you know? Right. And, and I'm always talking about accountability. And I feel like if laws would change, you know, I, I do understand we have to protect officers, and I'm not saying that. But I do know that when they're able to do certain things and there's no consequence for their action, right? they're going to continue to do that. And then the public is going to continue to be outraged. So until some of that changes, 
and, and they know like, hey, even if I don't feel like changing or, or, or showing humanity that my butt's going to be on the line, I'm not going to be protected in a certain way. Sure. I think that that would help ease some of these concerns. But it's kind of scary when you, you, you know, I, we grew up in the, probably the same era where you grew up watching these these mob flicks, you know. Yep. You know, the Goodfellas and the casinos and heat. Untouchables. Like yeah. Untouchables, you know, and it's like they were made men. And that's kind of how, you know, the community kind of feels. They're kind of made men, you know, they're out shopping. And that's and, a really good analogy. Wow. OK, I'm going to use that. I like that. So, <laughs> yeah, you're right. So hopefully to get better. And like I said, dialogues like this, I really appreciate your time. I know we were trying to schedule. We had conflicts, but uh, really thank you for carving this time out, man, to share your story and open up. Um, is there anything else you want to share? You have any projects or anything that you're working on or no, I, I, I don't have anything big coming up. I'm uh, you know, when, when we have social unrest and things like that, that, that come up, you know, I always get offers to come, to come around my mouth, but, um, no, I, n- nothing big, man. I just, I appreciate your time. I appreciate the opportunity to do it. And I'm glad Curtis hooked us up and, right. uh, you know, I, I look forward to continue to collaborate where we can. Definitely, man. If you have any courses coming up that the public is, is open, please let me know. Cause I would definitely like to attend. Okay, absolutely. I'll do so. All right, man. You be blessed, man. Much love. All right. Take care. I hope these authentic stories show different paths to success and provide mentorship. Please be sure to visit us at drjinterviews.com for additional content and social media info. Stay resilient.